This is the MG Car Club Podcast with Wayne Scott and Adam Sloman. On this podcast from the MG Car Club, we speak to one of the Sprint and Hill Climb competitors to find out exactly what the sport entails competing in an MG Midget. We talked to research director from the FBHVC, Paul Chasney, about the crucial National Historic Vehicle Survey. Plus, we hear how MG sales are doing post-lockdown in the UK. The MG Car Club Podcast. Welcome along then to the MG Car Club Podcast. Hope you're keeping well. It's nice to have you here listening to us. Adam is amongst his many white goods and utilities in the utility room. How are you, Adam? I'm really well, thank you, mate. Good to be with you again. (laughs) Good stuff. And uh, it's our weekly chance to geek out about all things MG and occasionally look a little bit wider to what the motor industry in general is doing. And it's been very interesting over the last sort of month or so since dealerships reopened as to how the motor industry has got back on its feet. Many people predicting a massive slump, massive crash straight after lockdown which actually hasn't happened Uh, i suspect there's worse still to come but actually the showrooms have been very busy the second-hand car market has been very busy certainly classic cars have been selling well at auction but new cars also selling particularly well for mg aren't they yeah it seems to be really busy a lot of people seem to be getting back into mg dealers i've seen a couple of um updates from dealers that have said that they've done sort of 140 150% over their monthly quota so there's a lot of people getting back into dealers which is um, really good i mean um summit garage in dudley who are probably one of the best known mg dealers uh i think they reported there was something like 176% over their monthly sales quota so yeah there's a lot of people buying new mgs which is really good news a major aspect to this is the fact that buying habits for new cars have changed and actually most people don't buy a new car in the traditional sense a lot of them are on higher purchase agreements or various different finance packages and some of those packages you actually have to hand the car back after a certain period of time now if your agreement ended during lockdown then you are forced to hand your car back new cars are required to replace them and i'm guessing we're probably seeing a lot of those come through the system as a backlog from the three months where showrooms were shut it's interesting because if you've got a car on on one of those deals and your deal runs out during lockdown are you allowed to use it i've never been in that situation i've i'm a little bit more sort of old school i prefer to if i'm going to pay for something every month i want to own it at the end of it rather than um have to hand it back and and start all over again but uh, no it's really good news that so many mg dealers are so busy well fantastic that uh, mg are continuing to sell cars of course we spoke some time ago on the podcast about their big plans for world domination basically (laughs) ahead of the 100th anniversary which was their uh, plans to get to a million sales globally well if they carry on like that they'll be doing all right they've been doing very well in india and if you read your newsletter the email newsletter that you can subscribe to via mgcc.co.uk you'd have seen lots of new models listed on there and one of them being the hector plus which has started appearing in showrooms across india of course not available in the uk but in the uk we've got a facelifted zs haven't we yeah so this has started to to break cover um this week with uh, dealerships again uh, a lot of mg news coming out of the dealer groups but um, with dealerships getting their first deliveries of the facelifted zs it's a really smart looking car um, a lot of changes to the front end um, a lot of changes to the interior all the cars that i've seen have got um 
black uh, leather seats with uh, red trim, with uh, octagon in the headrest, a big new touchscreen. Um, yeah, it's big improvements on the ZS. I mean, the the ZS was already a really interesting uh, proposition for for people in that sector. You know, you're looking for a sort of compact crossover type car, um, but the new one seems to take it even further. Interestingly, um, looking on MG's website at the moment, there's no listing for the one litre turbo, um, and there's also no listing for the base Explore model. Um, there's only Excite and Exclusive um, listed. So I really hope that we are gonna see that one litre three pot come back, because for me personally, uh, mated to that automatic gearbox, that was the one to go for. So hopefully we'll see that one uh, carried over to the facelifted car. Absolutely, and talking of the MG manufacturer and the factory and all the good stuff like that. How good, Adam, was Dr. Ian Pogson last week on the podcast? We're still enjoying it. I keep listening back to it. I could listen to his stories all day. Um, loads of good comments on the back of that interview, by the way. John Watson said, just listen to the latest podcast. Well done. Good to hear Ian's stories. Martin Lucas enjoying it, saying it was really interesting to hear about going behind the scenes at MG. And uh, we had a couple of comments left on the uh, podcast landing page over at mgpodcast.uk as well. Steve Thornton saying, I worked at Rover between 1984 and 2000 and had a very tiny part to play in the MGF development. I agree wholeheartedly with everything that Ian said on the last podcast. You can listen to that podcast anytime you like via mgpodcast.uk or, of course, find us on your chosen podcast app or subscription tool. Could be Google, could be Apple, could be Spotify. We're on them all. Episode 12 of Dr. Ian Pogson uh, that was sharing his memories with me from working for MG for so many years and also a real insight into the development of the MGF. That's episode 12 of the MG Car Club podcast. So if you missed it, go and listen to it now. Come on, catch up with us. Episode 13 now. And uh, looking at the classic car world, in the UK in particular, and the FBHVC are doing some valuable work for us at the moment. And that valuable work is collecting information. Now, this is the 2020 Enthusiast Survey. This had a massive impact five years ago, didn't it, Adam, on the classic car world when they did their last survey? And they happen every five years. And this was, of course, the survey that gave us the big figures on what the classic car world is worth to the economy, the number of people it employs, and also it gives the Federation the facts and figures at its fingertips it needs to go and argue for our freedoms as historic vehicle owners to have access to the road and be able to use our vehicles. I think it's worth probably explaining just how, how good and how valuable the FBHVC is to all of us. Um, probably the best way to sum them up is a little bit like a governing body or a little bit like a union. Um, they give us the, the strength to be able to go to government and say, now hang on a minute, this is important, this is valuable, this has tremendous worth to the economy. Um, so yeah, so it's really important the work they do and it's really important that all of us sort of take that time to get involved in this research um, so that they do have those facts and figures so they can 
make those guys that are uh, the lawmakers understand that we're not just a tiny little portion. You know, the classic car industry has a huge worth to the UK economy. Um, and you think about all the MGs on the road, you know, I think there's sort of like 120,000 MGs on the road. You know, the, the contribution that we are all making as MG fans to our economy, be it through buying a new set of headlights or mud flaps or going to a car show or going to a car museum you know the the contribution really is massive so the work the the federation does is is invaluable to us all and to the movement absolutely well the last survey was done in 2016 it uncovered that 8.2 million people in the uk are interested in historic vehicles or are active in the community that there are 1,039,950 registered historic vehicles on the road and that the historic vehicle community and the industry within it contributes five and a half billion pounds to the UK economy and when we're going into recession as we are expected to do on the back of the coronavirus pandemic these figures are really really important. Also it's very very important that uh, they did it quickly because it is usually supposed to be every five years uh, the last survey being 2016 i spoke to the federation about this and they said that they've brought it forward by a year because what they don't want to do is collect data on car usage that was applicable to 2020 because it won't be normal basically so they're asking people to keep 2019 in mind when they fill out the survey you can follow the links from our e-newsletter that goes out every Saturday from the MG Car Club, or you can go to the Federation website, fbhvc.co.uk. And to find out more about this critical survey that's really important for the future of historic vehicles in the UK, I spoke to the Federation's Research Director, Paul Chasney. Paul, it's been very, very busy times getting the National Historic Vehicle Survey not only ready to go, but also telling everyone about it. So before we go into this year's survey, give us a bit of background on the past surveys, what they've shown and how often they take place. Well, Wayne, over the last, uh, oh, it must be 15 years or so now, the Federation has undertaken every five years uh, a fairly substantial survey, uh, and of course it's become slightly easier more recently because we've been able to use the internet and um, and more computer-based uh, technology to, to pull together results. But the important thing is that we're trying to we're trying to demonstrate to people how important the the whole sector of historic vehicles is and how much is spent. Um, and then, so the last survey we did was in 2016, and you can see from that um, that, that the um, the whole movement is worth around about five and a half billion pounds to the national economy every year, um, and that's a whole combination of people uh, spending money on their vehicles. Um, Settling the vehicles, maintaining them, restoring them, but also taking them to events and that sort of thing. So it's a it's a big industry. We also know that in in 2016 there was a bit over a million uh, historic vehicles registered with the DVLA. Uh, it was actually just about a million and forty thousand. Um, I've 
this is really secret information, you understand, because it's not been published yet. But uh, our, the work I've been doing in the last few weeks, uh, we now know that vehicles over 30 years old, so our definition of historic, uh, there's just about one and a half million now. So it's quite a few since we did the last survey based on data in 2015. So it, it is an important part of the economy altogether. There's quite a bit in, in employment as well. I, I know you're aware, Wayne, but perhaps some of your listeners won't be, that there's something like 34,000 people directly involved in the historic vehicle industry. So it's those sorts of facts that we're now trying to, uh, to check and to update. And fundamentally, this gives you, as the FBHVC, the tools to fight and argue on all of our behalves doesn't it because basically you have to go into parliament and and talk to government about various subjects for example um, mot exemptions or e10 fuel which has been a hot topic very recently and when those people turn around to you and say well who is this sector of people that you're representing this data is absolutely crucial in convincing them that it is a big community that you speak on behalf of isn't it Absolutely. And the critical bit is that nobody else does this sort of comprehensive uh, survey. So there's nothing better than going and speaking to politicians uh, than having a few facts up your sleeve and be able to demonstrate that what you say is actually uh, the truth. Um, so doing this sort of survey is absolutely critical for our credibility in terms of saying to government, hey, look, do you know that there's half a million uh, historic vehicle owners out there um, and you'll be affecting them if you do something silly about uh, historic vehicles, for example? And, of course, it does reflect the changes that we're seeing in the historic vehicle community and, and it gives us tools to advise clubs and advise other people on how they adapt to those changes that are coming. And you mentioned there already the data on cars that are um, 30 years old and the increase in those on the roads as classed as historic. And that may well bring with it a different audience that we all need to sort of understand and, uh, and I guess, adapt to as well. I, I think that's important. And um, I suppose if there's a problem with us using more computer technology, it is that perhaps some of our older uh, owners uh, are perhaps not familiar with the computer technology and the internet and so getting information from them about what they what they do how they use their vehicles and what they spend on them is is actually quite difficult but i hope with the uh, the listeners that we're talking to now uh, we'll be able to log on to our website um, pick up the survey and complete it quite easily um, and and Last time, uh, that is in 2016, uh, we had about 11,000 individuals who completed the survey. Um, I mean, we've spoken about this, haven't we? It would be great if we could get maybe 20,000 this time because to a certain extent, the more people we get involved, the wider the spread and the better representation we get of, of the real impact uh, of the movement. Um, and of course, it's particularly important for some of the some of the smaller areas. Just about fifty percent of the historic vehicles are cars. A bit of a given, I suppose. And something like thirty percent, twenty nine maybe, are, are motorcycles. But there's all the agricultural tractors, 
heavy goods vehicles, steam, military vehicles, a raft of others that people sometimes rather forget. And it's important that we get those people uh, partaking in the survey um, and, and telling us about what they're doing and what's important to them. Because without us getting the information from the owners uh, and enthusiasts, um, we don't know what people think. Paul, there are some significant challenges coming for the historic vehicle community, isn't there? No matter what you drive or ride or ride on, um, how do you see this survey and this data helping us in the future? Now, going forward, I think it's particularly important because the emissions side of life seems to have sprung to the fore. Um, I think we've all seen how uh, the, the pollution levels in the environment have reduced because there's been less uh, motor traffic on the road. Um, and one of my big fears is that as, we, as vehicles are brought back onto the road, um, there will be more controls. Uh, I think we're already seeing that government are keen to get electric vehicles into city centres more. Um, what we must be very, very careful of is in using these broad brush approaches to very important things, keeping the environment suitable for us to live in, um, but using uh, or doing it in such a way that historic vehicles that frankly don't create a lot of, public, uh, of pollution because there's not so many of them and they don't go that far on average. You know, we need to demonstrate to people that please don't mess with historic vehicles because they're not the problem that you're trying to solve. Just describe for us how we can all contribute to this vital survey, a survey that uh, certainly is there to protect our freedoms to use the cars we love on the road for the future. So how can we take part in it? How do we do it? How long does it take? How easy is it? <laughs> well, first of all, it's really easy. It's uh, an online survey. Um, once you're into it, the questions are all pretty obvious to follow and you can click through the whole thing probably in about 15 minutes, 20 minutes if you've, if you've multiple vehicles because it allows for people to put information about up to uh, five historic vehicles and, and a couple of young timers for those who are interested in, in 20 to 30-year-old vehicles that will in due course become historic. So doing it is pretty straightforward, doesn't take a lot of time. Getting to it isn't that difficult either. Uh, simplest way is to log on to the Federation website, fbhvc.co.uk, and there's a direct link from there. Click on that link and it takes you straight into the survey. So it's not at all difficult. You haven't got to remember a great long uh, uh, URL address or anything. Just click on fbhvc.co.uk and follow the link from there. Brilliant. And uh, we will also put links in the description part of this podcast to that survey as well. So you can quickly link from the podcast page to go and find it. And uh, can't stress how important it is for you to take part and to contribute your little bit to the information that the FBHVC need to fight on our behalf for our freedoms to use the roads unhindered with our historic vehicles. Paul Chasney from the FBHVC, thanks for joining us. Good to talk to you. All the best. 
Well, a big thanks to Paul Chasney for coming on and explaining in more detail about just how important that survey is from the FBHVC. It happens every five years. They've brought, as Paul explained, this one forward a year so that we uh, capture the data from 2019. And interestingly, looking at that old data from five years ago, 6% of the 1,039,000-odd historic vehicles on the road were MGs. So it'd be really cool to see if that number has gone up over the last five years adam yeah it will be i mean like we said it's an important survey so hopefully as many of our listeners will um will jump on and and fill it out and we can get that information there was much controversy on the social media pages of the mg car club very recently (laughs) and uh it was unfortunately around the coronavirus updates that were issued by the club uh the mg car club is absolutely committed to keeping all of the members in touch and up to date up to the minute with what's happening and with what the guidance is for us car clubs and our events from uk government unfortunately uh the pubs were announced to be opened in the uk from the 4th of july which is excellent news except that most of the restrictions that limit public gatherings and people meeting together have actually not been lifted what has changed is that uh, social distancing remains at two meters uh, but where possible they've allowed social distancing to drop to a meter but you have to have all sorts of ppe involved in it Um, but also that um, they're still pleading with us and recommending here in the uk at least uh, certainly in england i know the restrictions are more strict in uh, wales scotland and northern ireland so any listeners in those areas any mg car club members from the caledonian center for example up in scotland do check what your local guidance is at the moment and for example i live not far from leicester as we record this podcast we're back in lockdown here full lockdown everything's shut unfortunately so it is varying depending on which part of the country you're in now even in england there are regional variations on this but fundamentally Government are still asking us to not have more than six households mix in outdoor spaces and no more than two households mixing in indoor spaces. And the police are still breaking up any gatherings of people over 30 in number. So still quite harsh restrictions on the movements of people. And while the pandemic is going on, we didn't think, Adam, that... um, It was, I suppose, the right tone, I think, is a phrase the guidance use... Uh, for classic cars to be out parading the streets just yet no definitely i mean i've had a couple of emails from from guys looking to get natters back on track looking to organize meets um and yeah like you say wayne the guidance really hasn't changed um yes it's frustrating especially when we had such glorious weather last week um and we've had you know that's really good weather this summer um and this pandemic has robbed us of so many things over the over the past few months but the guidance hasn't changed um it's just not safe to do so yet um and the the primary thing has got to be keeping everyone safe the important thing to remember as well that this isn't mg car club guidance this isn't something that that you and i and the team at kimber house have come up with this is from the government you know this is 
what the people at the top are saying. Um, so yeah, it's really important to continue to follow the guidance so that we can all get through this, so we don't get inundated with a second wave, so that local lockdowns don't become national lockdowns, and we can actually try and save something of this year and try and have some time with our friends, with our cars, and, and at our events. So so yeah, my, my advice to anyone listening is just please continue to follow the guidance. The MG Car Club Podcast. The MG Car Club, the mark of friendship. To take advantage of our many membership benefits, access to our centers and registers, and to receive your copy of Safety Fast magazine, join us now at mgcc.go.uk. Share your passion for MG on the MG Car Club podcast. next on the mg car club podcast we're talking to another of our motorsport set within the club it's ian benningfield joins us now hi ian hi nice to be on the podcast it's great to have you along and great to be able to talk about another aspect of motorsport that we enjoy in the club of course the speed championship which is uh, consisting of hill climbs and sprints up and down the country uh, for uh, the championship that travels into all different areas of the uk with all sorts of different fixtures and venues we'll find out more about them uh, as we uh, unfold this conversation but ian i wanted to just ask you first of all about your own history with mgs and where your love of MGs came from and how you discovered the MG Car Club. Yeah, so like a lot of people, uh, it's a family thing for me. So my my father used to race TCs back in the 70s. Uh, he had to sadly give up the car. Uh, but he came back into the MG fold in the early 2000s. He, he managed to pick up a, an XTC racer uh, and built that as a hill climb car. And I used to go along and, and watch him. I've been involved with, with motorsport for many years on the marshalling side and the officialling side. And I made the jump into being a competitor probably about 10 years ago, double driving uh, my dad Keith's TC at a few, few events. And from there, it went on to get my own car. And it was actually uh, a midget, uh, an MG1500 midget that had been in the championship before came up for sale and i thought well let's go for that one and have a look back since really and they're a fantastically versatile car to use in club motorsport aren't they and you've obviously prepared yours for the um, hill climbing sprints but uh, take us through exactly what you've had to do to take your road car and make it ready for the, the sort of motorsport that you enjoy doing very little really so i was very fortunate that uh, i said the car had been prepared and actually two previous people had raced it in the mg speed championship but the beauty of hill climbing and sprints really is there's a car for everybody uh in the mg car club championship we run four different categories of modifications really starting from what is a bog standard car with almost no prep needed right through to full-blown race cars on, on slick tires uh, and we cater for everything from p-types through to last year we had a, an mg3 that did very well in the championship but uh, for me in the standard class really the, the rules are incredibly simple you need a, a bit of yellow tape around your earth lead on the battery just in case you get into troubles the marshals know what's what uh, I've got a, a race seat and a race harness in my car, but that's that's optional. The the championship rules say we have to have a fire extinguisher fitted. It's just one of the small portable ones that you might pick up in a Halfords or, or any service station, really. That just needs to be securely mounted within the driver's 
reach when you're sat in the car. And, and that's really it for a standard car. Uh, it's up to you then if you want to modify your car. And of course, there's all sorts of things you can do with engine and brakes and suspension. Uh, but the beauty is you always find someone who's got similar modifications to you to race against. So talk us through your typical season then. Obviously, we're talking to each other in the middle of the pandemic, so it's been far from a typical season this year. But uh, looking back on 2019, uh, how does the season pan out for you? When does it start? Where do you go? How does it all work? Yeah, so we're really lucky. The Northwest Centre do a fantastic job of, of putting on and organising the, the championship. Uh, so a couple of the centres run their own events. So the Northwest Centre run events... Uh, Anglesey and in Scavenger Dam. The Midlands Centre run a couple at a sprint course called Kerbera in the Midlands and Southwest Centre, where I'm from, we run a hill climb down in Devon. But as well as those rounds, there's, there's close to 30 rounds across the country. As you said, we go everywhere from down in Cornwall to up to Yorkshire, across to Wales and, and everywhere in between. It's up to you as a driver how many rounds you want to do. So to compete in the national championship, you've got to do a minimum of eight rounds. Some people might only do a handful a season. It's really up to you uh, what you want to, to take part in. The, the season tends to kick off around March or April and then runs through to October. And there'll be, you know, three or four different events each month in different bits of the country. And we pick and choose which ones we go to. I think hill climbs and sprints are one of the hardest forms of motorsport because when you're on a circuit you sort of if you get if you have a bit of a dodgy lap you didn't quite have the time you wanted you, you come round again and you make sure you get that apex right or you, you don't miss the breaking point on that particular corner the next time round the problem with hill climb and sprint is you only get one shot to get that time nailed don't you really um and that, that's part of the skill of it isn't it yeah, it's the skill, and for me, I really enjoy it. So for, for those listening to the podcast who perhaps don't know what we mean by sprints and hill climbs, what we're talking about is one car on the track at once being timed to the nearest hundredth of a second. And you're right, we have a couple of practice runs normally in the morning, and then we'll have some lunch in the afternoon. We'll do, depending on the venue, two, three, four competitive time runs, and it's your best time across those afternoon sessions that will count. And yet every single apex, every single corner, every single time you let the clutch go off the start line, it all matters. Uh, I've been lucky enough to, to win the championship back in uh, 2015, 20, uh, I think it was. I, I won that uh, and it probably worked out by tenths of a second over the eight events of the year, the way the scoring system works. Wow, it is incredibly close. And um, for a spectator's point of view, Although the cars aren't racing sort of side by side, when you, whenever you're at a hill climb uh, uh, event, that afternoon session where everyone's just sort of having the deciding run on what their average of the day is going to be, the tension really builds, doesn't it? Because the sort of the competition starts to come through and you can start to compare times as they would be over an average. It is really exciting, despite the fact that you're not door handle to door handle necessarily. No, and rivalries emerge over the course of a season, the course of an event, and because we have such limited uh, track time, uh, if you don't get that bank of good running first, it can be a bit of a do-or-die effort uh, on the second event. And Sadly, this year, though we are going to see some competition uh, starting this month and for the rest of the year, at the moment, there, there could be closed venues, but it really is a great spectator sport. 
if you've been to watch circuit racing and then you come to see a, a hill climb or sprint, one of the things you're going to notice straight away is just how close you get to the cars. Uh, we don't have the big runoff areas. You can really see the drivers at work, especially in, in some of the older MGs where we're, we're open top. You can see the drivers soaring away at the wheels, uh, gear changes. And it's not just MGs racing. There are a huge variety of cars ranging from uh, standard saloon cars up to, to racing cars and really some quite exotic machinery. So that's well worth a look. And the paddock is open and they're very friendly to go look at the cars, talk to the drivers and, and see what's what really. So to give, if someone's listening to this now and thinks, well, I quite fancy the sound of this. This sounds really good. I'm going to give it a go. Talk us through your typical race weekend and sort of starting from Saturday morning when you no doubt get up at the crack of dawn uh, with the car on a trailer and head off somewhere. Tell us how the average weekend pans out for you. Yeah, so I'm very, I do trailer my car just because I find uh, I'm, I'm six foot something and long journeys in a midget aren't uh, always the most comfortable. But I did used to drive it to events. But we will typically get to a venue, you know, half seven, eight o'clock in the morning. It's a lot of familiar faces. We're a very friendly championship and all the MGs will, will normally be parked together in one group of the paddock. Uh, we've got some formalities to do as drivers. So typically we'll have to go and sign on and that's a, we're all licensed by Motorsport UK. We just have to show that license and, and sign some paperwork. And then we'll have a scrutineer come around and have a look at the cars. And, and like all motorsport, the scrutineers are there just to make sure we're all safe. We're all complying with the regulations. They'll check the car but they'll also check our helmets and our, our overalls and then depending on the the format of the event uh the running order tends to be in classes so cars of a similar type and, and modification will run together in what they call a batch so we might send 10 or, or 20 cars up the hill or out on the circuit they'll do their time runs and depending on the layout of the circuit and whether we have to bring cars back down the same way they've gone up or whether for instance, if we're at a Goodwood or Anglesey where we've got use of a pit lane, we can just come in and out. We might then have a little bit of a break and a time to fettle with the car, compare notes, uh, and then keep repeating that again. So a second practice, and then in the afternoon, we move on to the time runs. Talk us through then when you are sat on that start line and what's going through your mind, how you prepare yourself for the fact that you have literally in some cases, 30 seconds to get this right, and then it's all over. How do you prepare yourself for that? Yeah, so so often what I will do is I'll walk the course, especially if I've not been to a venue before, or I haven't been there for a few years, just to have a look at where the apexes are, what I can see as marker points, what the runoffs look like if I go a little bit too far, how close the, the armco is. So I've got a good, in my head, a good picture of what I want to do. I've got to say, I always try and visualize my perfect run and I, I tell myself where I'm going to break. But uh, when the light goes green, that all seems to go out the window and uh, the foot goes to the floor and the red mist comes down a little bit for me. Uh, but it's I, I, I video all my runs, as a lot of drivers do. So I do tend to watch those back and see if I can spot where I lost time or, or made time up uh, from previous events. And like a lot of people, I've, I'm quite diligent at keeping my time. So I've, I've got all my times from all the events I've done over the years. So I can look back and see, you know, was I faster last year and, and maybe think about what I might want to change for my next run. Tell us about how the family sort of evolves as the season goes on, because I know and anyone who's been and walked the paddocks at hill climb venues will know you are a really tight knit bunch, aren't you? 
we're a tight knit bunch, but we are, you know, a friendly and welcoming bunch as well. So I don't want people to think it's, it's too cliquey. But, you know, there's there's a lot of people that have been in the championship for many years. It's, it's been running. This would have been our 32nd season. Uh, and so there's a lot of people who have been in the same cars for a long time. And, and for me, it's a nice chance to see a different circle of MG friends every other weekend during the, the summer season. But there's always new faces. There's new cars. I think especially early on in the season, everyone's having a quick look at what their neighbour's done. Certainly this year, I've spent the winter trying to uh, improve my car and I've actually taken it up to a, a new class to run in a slightly more modified spec. So I'm sure people will be in my car the once over when I do get back on track. One of the challenges we have, Ian, is encouraging younger people to take part in the MG Car Club race series. What do you think we could do to encourage newer generations of people to get involved in the sport? I think it's tricky with all motorsport that the costs sadly are are rising. But I think one thing that the speed championship does have in its favour is, as you said, it is a, a cheap entry level motorsport. I think if perhaps you have done a track day and you've got that bug for speed, uh, circuit racing is quite a big step up in budget. But uh, if you've got a modern car and, and the Motorsport UK have made a conscious effort to try and improve things for first-time drivers so i think post 2000 uh they've actually relaxed some of the rules so you don't have to go out straight away and splash out on a, a fireproof suit and overalls you do need a helmet uh, and as i said before some really basic modifications what i really recommend to anyone who's got a vague interest in, in motorsport is just to come along to one of these events when the season's back up and running properly and we're allowed spectators again have a wonder around the paddock. You'll see how bog standard the cars are. There's plenty of people who drive their, their Z or their TF to and from the meetings, use it as a runaround. You know, I used to drive my midget to work in the week and race it at the weekends, which I think is what the, the ethos of the club was right back in the beginning with perhaps trials back then. So, yeah, the more new faces, the better. Mm, absolutely. And looking back over the last few seasons, what's the biggest thing that you've learned or been working on with your own technique? I think certainly I realised I couldn't break quite as late as I thought at Prescott when I ended up in the, bar the barriers. Uh, <laughs> and it definitely sort of the uh, build up slowly is the right technique. That very much was one banzai uh, lap because of some problems I've had earlier in the season. But really, I think there's no experience like getting to know your own car. You know, every, every MG has its own foibles, its own handling characteristics. And it did take me a few years in the midget to, to get used to exactly how I could throw it around the corner, how it was going to behave. And again, some of the, the sprints were really useful for just becoming a better all-round driver, just finding out where you can push the limits, what happens in a relatively safe environment if you push too hard. After all, unlike a track day or a circuit race, if you spin on a corner, no one else is going to come along and collect you. And it's not always about power, is it, on hill climbs and sprints? Uh, and the great thing that uh, the midgets have in their favour is they're so nimble and so easily manoeuvrable on some of the tighter venues. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I love being able to just chuck the midget around and it's, it's very responsive in its handling. I think the other great thing about the championship is it's all based on like-for-like -like cars. So we have, as I said earlier, we've got four different levels of modification. So me and my standard midget, I'm not up against someone who's got slick tyres and a, a fiberglass body. But the way the championship scored, unlike a lot of uh, speed championships and racing, 
is we score everyone against a time. So every different type of car has its own target time for an event. So I might go to Prescott and have to get up the hill in, in around 60 seconds. Someone who's got a more powerful car will have a, a lower target time. So we're always competing against like for like. So power really isn't in the equation in the way we run our championship. You can still be really competitive in whatever car you've got. Talking of those venues, what throughout the season is is the one that you know that you're going to do well at? And I suppose it would be your favourite one, but is there a particular one that you, you feel particularly comfortable or good at? I've got a couple of reasons. I, I very much favour the hills over the sprints. I like the sort of tight, narrow, twisty nature. Uh, and with the midget not having as much horsepower as some of the other cars, I find sometimes the sprints can be a little bit big and open and flat for me. I guess Wiscombe, which is run by the Southwest Centre because it's one of my local hills. I tend to go there more than any other event. Uh, so I've got a lot of practice there and I do seem to go well there. But I think the other one I really do enjoy is uh, Lowton Park. It's a fabulous hill. It's uh, one of the longest on the season. It's got a real mix of some very fast uh, straights, all sorts of different types of corner. Uh, and you get you know a really good variety for your day out there. And if someone wanted to, to try this out for the first time, one major piece of advice, the biggest tip that you wish someone had told you when you started, what would it be? I think the absolute one is to speak to someone in the championship before you touch your car. So we see lots of people that have done track days or have just got modifications on the car. You know, a lot of people are driving around now with perhaps gearbox conversions in, in classic cars. All of those things have the potential to trip you up when you come into competition because we have to tightly control the classes and, and put everything on an even keel. So either come to one of the events or we've got a really active uh, Facebook group that you can find just by searching MG Speed Championship and have a chat to the other drivers, pick their brains, learn from their experiences and mistakes before you modify your car. Otherwise, you could find yourself in a class that you really don't want to be in brilliant advice and of course you can find out more information on the mg car club speed championship via mgcc.co.uk just click the motorsport button there and you'll find the speed championship as a menu item along the top and uh, it's been great to uh, get under the skin of it really with you in and find out a little bit more about uh, what the speed championship get up to throughout the year and uh, you must be itching to get out in a future season after a year of lockdown i am I think sadly this year might be a write-off with me with the, the car still in bits, but I, I'm going to do my best to try and get out for the end of the season this year, but I'll certainly be back next year. Well, if you have an opportunity, listeners of the podcast to go and cheer Ian on, please do so. Keep your eye on the website for future fixtures when the world is a little less crazy and motorsport is back to normal. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you all out again as well. So uh, Ian Benningfield, thanks for joining us on the MG Car Club podcast. The MG Car Club podcast. Safety Fast, the magazine of the MG Car Club. Get your copy now by joining us at mgcc.co.uk. Well, you and I were talking earlier on about the fact that we aren't able to get out at uh, so many events as we'd like to be at, uh, and uh, all the money that I'm not spending on bacon butties at car shows and coffees, uh, overpriced lattes and all that kind of stuff, is burning a hole in my pocket, Adam. It is. And uh, I'd quite like to spend some of that money in the club shop. What should I be buying? What do you reckon? Oh, well, mate, I think 
the big thing I've got to recommend again um, is the is the 90th anniversary grill badge because uh, they're in stock now and they're being dispatched as we speak. And um, yeah, it sounds daft to be so um, so excited by a grill badge, but this badge is genuinely one of the nicest bits of merchandise I think we've ever had at the club. They all come uh, individually numbered. Um, so I've got number 73 to match the fact that my MGB is a 1973 BGT. Um, they're, in a, they're in a green box with the Car Club logo on the, on the lid. And each one comes with a, an individual numbered certificate from John Day. And they are genuinely, like I said, one of the nicest things I think we've ever produced. So that's where I'd start. Um, from there, you could invest in. Well, the sky's the limit, really, mate. What do you, what do you fancy? Well, what's taking my fancy, Adam, is the anniversary tie. Oh yes, if you want to look dapper, if you want to look smart, if you want to impress everyone the next time you pop round for dinner, this is what you need. It has got the uh, MG Car Club's 90th anniversary logo upon it. And hopefully at some point we'll get back to normal and we can all have meals and meetups and dinners and all that kind of stuff. And do you look the piece in your blazer, looking svelte and sharp, and your anniversary tie. And they're available now on the MG Car Club shop. But it's not only just the tie, Adam, and the large uh, grill badges, the anniversary grill badges, but the small ones are now available. And these were the ones that people put their name down for, weren't they? Yeah, we've had um, we've had quite a bit of interest, so they are available now, and they're ideal for um, anything from uh, RV8 onwards, really. So RV8, MGF, ZR, ZS, ZT. Um, yeah, they're they're perfect, and they are they are really nice. It's a slightly different logo to the large anniversary grill badge, um, but again, great way to mark the anniversary. And if you've a bit like me, if you've got the MG90 grill badge and you've got the other anniversary badges, then you're going to want one to to complete the set. And they're such good quality as well and so heavy and they look really bright and nice. They're just nice. I'm, I'm really, I really like them. I'm really pleased with them. Yeah, definitely. The thing is, it's all about quality and that's Inika's big thing. If it's, if it's not good quality, she won't even consider it. So, so yeah, so they are really, really nice, really well made. So yeah, well worth getting. Also, we did mention polo shirts on the last podcast and I got pulled up on something I said about the polo shirts on the last, last podcast because um, a very nice lady messaged me via social media and said, uh, you were talking about those polo shirts, but I don't like wearing men's polo shirts. The great news is there's the ladies fit as well on there. We didn't mention the ladies fit ones, Adam. And I know this is a bugbear with the ladies because uh, they don't want to wear baggy ones that make them feel like a bloke so uh, they are on there uh, apparently so i'm told uh, the mg car club ladies 90th anniversary polo with the ladies fit of the polo shirt they are on there you can get them and they're in the navy blue and the white and also there's a new men's one as well with safety fast down the arm uh, just to 25 quid in there so lots of good stuff to check out in the mg car club shop and before we go, just a reminder, of course, that the virtual MG show continues on photos.mgcarclub.co.uk. You can access that using the uh, link on the MG podcast page, mgpodcast.uk. Or, of course, you can reach it from the MG Car Club homepage as well. We've had so many entries and what we should let everyone know, if you haven't visited it in a little while, if you've sort of seen it back in May or whatever and haven't been back since, it's now expanded to include America, India, 
and Australia. So there were so many different entries from so many different parts of the world. We've actually started to uh, sort of part them out into uh, regions of the world now. So lots more entries still coming in for the MG Car Club Virtual MG Show. It started as a photo competition at the beginning of the year. It's kind of turned into our virtual MG Show that's run through the summer now. But some of the cars on there, stunners, Adam. Yeah, there's some really brilliant cars on there. And I just love the fact that it's turned into this global gathering you know we couldn't have mg live this year because of the virus but we've got the next best thing in the form of the the photo competition so yeah do do go and have a look do submit your photos we're looking um especially for more entries from the states and i know that there are some amazing cars in the states um i you know we've had tom wilson on talking about his cars um i've yet to see photos from people like uh, jack schneider and i know that jack's got a, a gorgeous mg um so let's get some entries from the states the guys from the from australia have done some some brilliant photos there's some really good entries on there and our friends in india as well lots and lots of uh, hectares looking looking really nice so uh, yeah really good really really good brilliant it is online at mgpodcast.uk just click the link there or go direct to photos.mgcarclub.co.uk we'll be back next week with another mg car club podcast and another great interview from someone from within the world of mg about their life with the cars that we love so from me cheerio see you later look forward to it take care guys subscribe to receive new episodes of the mg car club podcast at mgpodcast.uk